All right. I'm Pastor Michael. We are doing a sermon series on the book of Deuteronomy. And the text that we're going to look at today is on the distribution of the land. This is the land that was taken from the Amorites, which are a Canaanite peoples. Um, we looked at this last week, if you remember. I thought Pastor John did an excellent job. The people of Israel go to war against these two Canaanite kings, Og and Sihon, and then they take possession of this land. And this is the first installment of the promised land and the rest of it lies on the other side of the Jordan River, west of the Jordan River. But the lands east of the Jordan River are um, given to two and a half of the tribes of Israel, to Reuben, to Gad, and then half of the tribe of Manasseh. And that's our story. And on the surface, it's, it, it doesn't seem to be a very exciting story. But I want you to know it is profound. All scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, for training in righteousness. All scripture is speaking today. And this text is speaking to us. Because Israel's story is our story. In uh, Galatians 6.16, Paul says that the church is the Israel of the New Testament And Israel is the church of the Old Testament so that we are one people. It's it's one continuous, seamless story. And that's the key. That's the uh, master paradigm for reading the book of Deuteronomy. So with that in mind, let's uh, read Deuteronomy chapter 2 verses, uh, sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 3 verses 12 through 22. um, And I'll read it for you. So this is Moses speaking. He's, he's addressing, he's, he's preaching to Israel. When we took possession of this land, again, this is the land east of the Jordan River, the lands that were taken from the Amorites. When we took possession of this land at that time, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites, that's two of the tribes of Israel, the territory beginning at Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities. The rest of Gilead and all Bashan and the kingdom of Og, that is all the region of Argob, I gave to the half tribe of Manasseh. That's the third tribe. All that portion of Bashan is called the land of Rephraim. Jair, the Manassite, took all the region of Argob, that is Bashan, as far as the border of the Girgashite and, and the Machathites, uh, and called... Um, the villages after his own name, Havath Jair, as it is to this day. To Machir I gave Gilead, and to the Reubenites and the Gadites I gave the territory from Gilead as far as the valley of the Arnon, with the middle of the valley as a border, as far over as the river Jabbok, the border of the Ammonites. The Arabah also, with the Jordan as the border from Chinnereth, that's just another name for Galilee, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, that's the Dead Sea, under the slopes of Pisgah on the east. Verse 18. And I commanded you at that time, saying, 
The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I have given you until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you, and they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession, which I have given you. And I commanded Joshua at that time, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. This is the word of God. So the theme of our text is unity. And my three points, and here's the outline, is first the call to unity. That's going to occupy um, the bulk of our sermon, actually. The problem of, number two, the problem of disunity. And then number three, the uh, uh, unity in Christ. So let's begin. The call to unity. So the first half of our text, that large first paragraph there, goes into great detail on the geography of the land. And here I almost wish I had a map. I don't like to use visual props in sermons, but it would really help you to track because Moses here gives us the names of valleys and rivers and um, various seas, Galilee to the north, the Dead Sea to the south. And these mark the boundaries of the land. And so the text goes into, you know, meticulous detail on the geography. Do you know why? Because this is the promised land. This is the land that was promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And it is finally happening. (laughs) I want you to try to understand what must have been this deep sense, this palpable sense of excitement and joy for the people, not just you know, for the theological meaning of the land, which is profound because the land is a foretaste of heaven. It's it's a beachhead for God's new heavens and new earth. And at the end of time, all the earth will be his. Not just, you know, this, this profound theological meaning, but also think about the practical benefits. No more wandering in the wilderness in tents, Um, No more fighting off enemies, but finally, finally, to settle down, to sink down roots, to build a life, to start families, to build to the future. But immediately, you see a problem. It's a significant problem. And the problem is that all of this joy and excitement is true only for two and a half of the tribes. For Reuben, Gad, and and half of Manasseh, but the rest of the tribes of Israel, that's nine and a half tribes, right? There's 12 tribes in Israel. The rest of the tribes are still homeless because the bulk of the conquest still lies on the other side of the Jordan. And therefore, 
the conquest is only halfway complete. And this allotment of land, these tribal distributions, is partial, it's incomplete. It's true for some of the tribes, but it's not true for the rest of the tribes. And that unevenness, right, that asymmetry puts the unity of the tribes to the test. And you can see that in our passage in verses 18 through through 20. It's the middle paragraph there. And um, it's alluded to, it's sort of hinted at, you can sense some of the tension because Moses very pointedly instructs the tribes to keep their commitments to continue the fighting. So what's going on here? He's referring back to Numbers chapter 32. Numbers 32 is key to understanding this passage. It's basically a longer, more detailed version of the same story. It's a parallel story. But it gives us a lot more background, a lot more details. And if you read Numbers 32, what happens is that the people come into the land. This is the land taken from the Amorites. The land is called Gilead. And these are the lands, again, east of the Jordan River. And the geography of the land is that it's this hilly countryside. The soil is rocky and thin. Um, It's a little bit like the highlands of Scotland or think about uh, the hills between Castro Valley and San Ramon. It's not suitable for farmland, but it's perfect for pastures and keeping livestock. And Numbers 32 tells us that Reuben and Gad, they are basically tribes of herdsmen and shepherds. They hold significant livestock. You'll notice in verse 19 in our passage, Moses very pointedly says, I know you have much livestock because that is one of the key driving motivations for what happens. And so Reuben and Gad, they see, they come into the land, they see the land, and they basically say in their hearts, this is home. We're home at last. And they ask Moses if they can settle down. And in Numbers 32, and this is, this is key, they ask Moses if they can withdraw from the rest of the conquest. They ask if they can stop fighting. Because they want to settle down. They want to build a life for themselves. Moses' reaction to this is very strong. And he gives a speech. This speech dominates Numbers chapter 32. And I want to read you portions of the speech. It's really key to understanding this passage. Let me start in um, verse 6. He says to them, Shall your brothers go to war while you sit here? Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? Your fathers did this when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. And that word Kadesh Barnea should immediately ring a bell We looked at this several weeks ago. Actually, in the speech, Moses goes into great detail to explain what had happened at Kadesh Barnea. 
What happens is that the people assemble at Kadesh Barnea. This happened 40 years prior. Kadesh Barnea is on the southern border of Canaan. The people send out spies to scope out the land. The spies return with a bad report. The land is filled with giants. The Canaanites are unconquerable. The people of Israel fall into despair and unbelief, and then they refuse to go into the promised land. And God responds with judgment and wrath, and he condemns the people to die in the wilderness. So Moses recounts all of that, those events. And then in verse 14, he says this, listen to this. He's speaking to Reuben and Gad. And behold, you have risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following the Lord, he will again abandon the people in the wilderness and you will destroy all this people. So this is hair-raising stuff, okay? It's a fiery speech because Moses compares Reuben and Gad to that generation that had sinned at Kadesh Barnea. Remember, Moses is now addressing the second generation, right? These are the children of the first generation that had come out of Egypt, that had sinned at Kadesh Barnea, and for that sin, they perish in the wilderness. And let's be clear about this. When they died in the wilderness, Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 tells us that's a picture of hell, of eternal judgment. And Moses is saying, you are committing the same sin. This is the same wicked heart that led to judgment and death. It's the same sin. And what is that sin? It is the sin of disunity. It's the sin of breaking off from the body to pursue your own concerns. It is the sin of dissension and separation. I got to say, of all the quintessential American sins, this has got to be it. It's woven into our history, into our culture. You know, because we Americans, we're individualists. And when we congregate, it's not a union, you know, it's not this unbreakable bond, but it's a kind of loose association for a while until we disagree and then we part company. This is reflected in our divorce rate. This is reflected in the fractious nature of our politics. And this is reflected in the spiritual consumerism of the American churchgoer. But look at what Moses says. It is very strong stuff. In verse 15, he says, If you turn away from following the Lord, he will again abandon the people in the wilderness, and you will destroy this people. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying to Gad and to Reuben, 
if you don't stick together in this crucial moment, then all of Israel will die. If you each go your own way, if you each focus on your own needs and concerns, then the conquest will fail. And what Moses is saying is that the unity of the tribes is a life and death issue. That's what he's saying. It's a life and death issue. Now, is Moses overstating the case? Is he using sort of over-the-top language? You know, the way preachers sometimes do, right? You know, everything is the most important verse. Everything is the most crucial issue. Um, So is he sort of using hyperbole to get his point across? No. No, listen to me. If, If this were merely a matter of military logistics... If you, if you go to Numbers chapter 1, uh, there's a census taken of each of the 12 tribes. And actually, um, these three tribes, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, they are among the smallest of the tribes. And so their absence, their sort of withdrawing from the war would not be a crucial loss. And so Moses here is not just talking about the numbers. Okay, But what he's saying is that the very mission of God is at stake in the unity of his people. If you go to John chapter 17, John 17 is Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's his final prayer for his disciples before he goes to the cross. And the central thing that he prays for is is the unity of the church. Of all the things that he could pray for, doctrinal purity, effective evangelism, the power of miracles, he prays, above all else, he prays for unity. In verse 21, listen to Jesus. Father, I ask that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that, listen to this, the world may know that you have sent me. Jesus prays for the union, for the oneness of the church, just as the Father and the Son are one, so that, did you hear the reason, the the, the logic of what Jesus is saying? He's saying that the unity of the church is the evidence that we come from God. In fact, this is so crucial to the nature of the church that it is one of the main ways that people can tell if God is really in our midst. It's one of the unmistakable signs of our supernatural origin. And if it's not there, then the world has a right to reject us. The world has a right to say, there's nothing special about you. Because when I see you constantly breaking apart, each of you going your own way, how is that different than the way the world operates? It is remarkable how often this teaching 
on unity comes up in the New Testament. You have passage after passage urging unity, pleading for unity. You have passages like 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 3, Ephesians chapter 4, Colossians chapter 3, Romans 15, John 17. And in addition to these lengthy chapter-length treatments, you have all of these one-off little verses often coming at the end of epistles as a concluding exhortation. So, for example, listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. This is Paul's concluding statement. He says, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace be with you. Or listen to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. This is one of my favorite verses. I have this verse written down on my bathroom mirror. I, I meditate on it every day. Peter concludes his epistle. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Or listen to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. This is the prelude, this is the introduction to that famous hymn of Christ. Right? He did not uh, grasp equality with God. Um, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. And then listen to verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from His love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Why? Why? If this is so basic to the nature of the church, why is unity constantly being instructed and taught in the Bible? Don't you understand? It's because it doesn't come naturally. It is difficult. It is effortful. It takes tremendous energy to hold on to each other when we disagree, it's easy to be together when things are going fine. But it is hardship. It is adversity. It is when we are going through trials and tribulation. That's the test. That's the test. There has never been a year of ministry like this pandemic. When I talk to other pastors, when I talk to my brothers at Presbytery, we all agree there's never been a year like this. And across the nation, churches are struggling with unity. Let me pause for the... Is that a helicopter? Listen, 
We live in a world where relationships are disposable and fleeting. And maybe it's because we live in a mobile economy and everyone is constantly on the move. Everyone is upgrading to the next best thing. But I believe that the church is this unique institution in our culture. And in a world where the currents of popular opinion are constantly changing and swirling about us, the church is this island of constancy and steadfastness. It is a place where you can sink down your roots. It is a place where you can call home. It is a place where you can experience friendships that last not just a few years, but that span across the decades. It is a place where you commit your life to others, where you make this binding promise to one another of mutual care and love. And so you make this promise. And then do you know what you do? You endure. You endure the problems and the disagreements. And if you don't see any problems in our church, that's probably because you're still in the honeymoon phase. Just wait three or so years and you will see all of our shortcomings, all of our flaws. They will become evident to you. But you know, that's normal. That's how all relationships work. You have to go down into the valley of disappointments. And then it's only on the other side as you endure the disagreements, the problems, that you can reap the enduring fruit of unity. You know, this is hard. Maybe this is the hardest thing we will ever do together as a church. This is hard for us, and it's hard for, it was hard for Israel. That leads me to my second point, the problem of disunity for Israel. So in Numbers chapter 32, Moses severely warns Reuben and Gad. And in this story, they repent. And they pledge themselves to fight alongside their brothers. And this is outlined for us in verses 18 to 20 in our passage. The plan is they're going to leave their wives and their children and their livestock in Gilead, and they're going to stay the course. They're going to continue the fighting. And I want you to appreciate a little bit how difficult this must have been for them, because in Joshua chapter 14, it tells us that it was seven more years until they completed the conquest. Think about that. Seven years away from their homes, from their families, seven years of hard fighting in the trenches, but they do it. They do it. But if you continue reading the story of the Old Testament, you realize that this show of unity doesn't last. It's only this brief moment in time. So that when you get to Joshua chapter 22, Joshua 22 is immediately after the end of the conquest. So we're talking just seven years later. 
the story tells us that Reuben, Gad, and, Man- and the half of the tribe of Manasseh, they're called the Transjordan tribes because they're on the other side of the, of the Jordan River. They return home and they begin to build this altar to the Lord. The text tells us it's an altar of imposing size, this enormous altar. And the rest of the tribes hear about this and they are alarmed. And they see this altar as a rival worship center to the one they have in Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle is, and the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, and the Ark of the Covenant. And um, we're going to get to this. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, it tells us that the whole nation of Israel is to have only one single centralized place of worship where all the tribes would come and gather together to worship God during all the you know religious festivals like Yom Kippur, and it would be this sort of um, central pedal, you know, unifying force. And so this, the other tribes see this altar in Gilead as this bid for secession, as you know, these Transjordan tribes trying to break off and form their own nation and even their own religion. And so all the tribes gather together at Shiloh to prepare for war. But before they march off into battle, they decide to send a delegation, you know, to investigate if their initial impression is correct. And then what happens is that the delegation goes and talks to the tribes and they discover that the Transjordan tribes were feeling insecure about their place, about their sense of belonging in Israel. They saw the Jordan River as this obstacle, this sort of barrier that over time would separate them from the other tribes and the other tribes would eventually reject them. And from that place of insecurity, they built this altar as a replica of the altar at Shiloh, not as a rival worship center, but as a monument to unity. (laughs) But they hadn't let They hadn't communicated that to the other tribes. And so the delegation hears this and they are satisfied and war is averted. You know, I wish I had more time to study this passage because it's really fascinating because you have miscommunication, you have misunderstanding, you have the problem of physical distance and it almost breaks the unity of the tribes But then through dialogue, right, through conversations, they come to understand each other and unity is preserved. But it's a warning sign. And then you get to Judges chapter 5. Judges is the very next book. So this is just a couple of generations later. Israel is under attack by Sisera and Canaanites. But under the leadership of Deborah, the judge, the tribes of Israel rally together in battle and they defeat the Canaanites. And in Judges chapter 5, Deborah sings a song to commemorate God's mighty mighty deliverance. And in the song, it's really interesting, she goes, she lists all the tribes. And she talks about each of their contributions. And she singles out Issachar 
and Ephraim for their faithfulness and loyalty to God and to the people. But then you get to Judges, then you get to verse 15. And I, I want to read to you verse 15. Listen, listen to what she says. But among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. And Gilead, this includes Gad, stayed beyond Jordan. What is Deborah saying? She's saying Reuben and Gad, you know, they didn't outright reject the other tribes, but they just held back, you know? They just sort of sat on the sidelines and they sort of thought, mm, should we go? They dithered. And in the end, they didn't join the fight. And so you can see this trajectory of distance and separation. And over time, the grievances accumulate. The miscommunication gap gets worse and worse until finally under King Rehoboam, it finally reaches a breaking point. In 1 Kings chapter 12, the 10 northern tribes, and this includes the Transjordan tribes, join Jeroboam in rebellion and they break away from the house of David. And from that point on, Israel is permanently split into two nations and they never reunite, never. Until finally, the northern tribes are taken into exile by Assyria in the 8th century, and you never hear from them again. You never hear from them again. So that Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh disappear from the biblical record. And then you get to the New Testament, and then you see that the land of Gilead is actually now Gentile territory. In the, in the New Testament, it's called the Kingdom of Perea because there are no more Jews. There are no more Jewish people living in Gilead. They're gone. That's how the story ends. That leads me to my third point. Is unity impossible? Is it just a dream? Will the forces of disunity in the end always, inevitably, pull us apart? At the end of our passage, in verses 21 to 22, Moses turns to Joshua. Joshua is going to lead the people in the rest of the conquest, the rest of the promised land. And he reminds Joshua of God's faithfulness in defeating these two Canaanite kings, right? Og and Sihon. But you have to understand that these were two minor kings, actually. They had small populations with a limited army. And therefore, the worst of the fighting still lies ahead. The Canaanites to the west of the Jordan River are in fortified positions. They are numerically vastly superior. They are militarily advanced. They have horses and chariots. So that, humanly speaking, this is a doomed enterprise. It is impossible. 
This is why Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh did not want to fight. Because the path ahead was full of peril and hardship. So what is the answer? Look at verse 22. Moses says, You shall not fear them. For it is the Lord... There's a plane. That's my second one. <laughs> Let me pause. It's so loud, right? All right. Verse 22. Moses says, You shall not fear them. For it is the Lord your God who fights for you. It is the Lord your God who fights for you. You know that expression? If you read the commentaries, they'll tell you this is what we call a literary motif. Because it reoccurs, it, it, it appears about a dozen times throughout the Old Testament, particularly in Deuteronomy and the book of Joshua. And this expression is hearkening back to this key moment in the book of Exodus, where it appears for the first time. It's a very famous story. Moses is leading the people of God out of Egypt, and they find themselves backed up against the Red Sea. The Egyptian army is pursuing them, and the people are terrified because they are absolutely defenseless. And then in Exodus chapter 14, verses 13 to 14, Moses says this, listen to this. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. For the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. For the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. And then what happens is God parts the Red Sea and people are saved. If you read the rest of the Old Testament, you come to understand that this is the central event. This is the paradigm salvation event for the people of God in their history. And what it's telling us is that the people cannot save themselves. In this critical moment, their backs are against the wall and they can do nothing. They don't pick up a sword. They don't so much as lift a finger. All they can do and all that they are instructed to do is stand by and watch as the Lord fights for them. I want you to understand this is a picture of our salvation. Christianity, listen to me, is not about something that we can do in order to become better people. It is about what Christ has done for us through the cross, through his empty tomb. Jesus Christ accomplished everything that is necessary for our salvation. It is he is the one who atoned for our sin, who satisfies the wrath of God, who offers to us his perfect righteousness, which is a free gift that we receive 
by faith alone. So that when people ask, what do I have to do to be saved? The answer is, you don't do anything. (laughs) Because Christ has done it for you. All you do is look to him for your salvation and you will be saved. That's the gospel. Now, how does that help us keep unity in the church? I'm going to close with this thought. We have to ask ourselves, what causes this unity in the church? If you go back to Philippians chapter 2, it's this passage on unity. I read to you already, verse 2, Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, in full accord, and of one mind. And in the very next verse, verse 3, he says this, listen to this. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So much of the disunity in the church comes from self-regard and ego and lack of humility. But the gospel of Christ destroys that because you did nothing to earn your salvation. You have nothing to boast of. It is a free gift by grace. And when you understand that, that you are a sinner saved by grace, to that degree you will be able to extend compassion, patience, understanding for your fellow sinner. And you will be able to forgive them just as you also need forgiveness. This is the only way that we can hold on to each other. It's the only way. The answer to disunity is that we need Christ. We need to look at Him. We need to stand still and see that the Lord fights for us. Let's pray. Lord, this doctrine of the unity of the church is easy to accept in theory, in the abstract, but it is hard to practice in reality. Where we have failed, where each of us have failed, forgive us, Lord. Preserve your unity. I mean, preserve the unity of the church. Give us unity of mind, sympathy and love for one another, tenderness of heart, and a humble mind. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.